two remaining schools in the Pac-12 are in a legal fight for all of that conference's assets. The Milwaukee Brewers are getting half a billion dollars to stick around, and we're taking a deep dive into the world of football contracts with someone who has helped negotiate more than a few of them. It's Thursday, November 16th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Washington State and Oregon State received a favorable ruling in their efforts to take control of the Pac-12. Joining me now to discuss is front office sports reporter Amanda Kristovich. Explain to us the legal ruling uh, that favored Washington State and Oregon State and kind of what happens next year. Yeah, so this was, I guess, part two in what appears to be uh, a a multi-part legal battle. Um, So just to explain, I'll back up. I'll back up about two months, I think. So in September, the um, the two remaining Pac-12 schools, Washington State and Oregon State, filed this lawsuit in local court against the Pac-12 and Commissioner George Klievkoff, um, basically about, as you said, who has control of the conference, specifically who has the power to vote on the Pac-12's board. Um Generally, when a school announces their intention to leave a conference, even if they're not leaving for a couple years, they automatically forfeit their right to sit on that board. Um, And so Washington State and Oregon State's position was that they, as the only two members who have not announced they intend to leave, now control the conference. Of course, uh, the other schools weren't happy about that, so now they are in court. Um, there was a hearing a month or two ago that essentially ruled in their favor, but didn't give them power over, um, the conference. It just prohibited the 10 departing schools from like unilaterally taking power away from them. This hearing yesterday was for a preliminary injunction, which is closer to the crux of the case, um, which is essentially, voting, you know, deciding who gets voting power. The judge did grant the sole voting power of the conference's board to Washington State and Oregon State. But like literally within seconds of saying that, he reiterated to the court that if and when um, the other side appeals, which they will, um, his ruling will no longer like be in effect. Like, you know what I mean? Until it's uh, until the appeal is heard. Uh-huh. And it's kind of like when a player gets suspended and they say, but you're not suspended until we look at your appeal exactly. and suspend you again. But even in addition to that, the judge said that I will give until Friday um, for my hearing or for my, my ruling to go into effect, which is to say that so long as the other side files their appeal by Friday, this ruling will not go into effect at all until the appeal is heard. Does that make sense? I'm trying to like make this, all the, these like legal touch points sound, you know, I'm trying to translate them into what this actually means. And so even though all the headlines are saying that the PAC 12 now control or the PAC 12 is now controlled by the PAC two, that is not legally the case yet. What would that mean if, because it feels like Oregon State and Washington State, even if they don't get it now, they could presumably just wait out the schools that are all going to leave in a year um, and be the pack two. What what does this mean to 
you know, put the the power, the IP, the whatever else into the hands of two so schools. The ruling gives, first of all, let me just explain like the major implication, right? If this is granted on appeal, um, which means that Washington state and Oregon state would take control of the conference, at least until there's a trial, which could take months, right? So by the time they make the requisite changes they want to make the conference, you know, the, the, the purpose of the trial might be moot anyway. Um, so they would get all control of the assets, the liabilities, and the intellectual property of the Pac-12, meaning that they can decide how all of the money is distributed that comes into the Pac-12. Um, they also, however, will have to assume the liabilities of the conference. Think legal liabilities. Think all the court cases about athletes' rights and NIL that the Pac-12 is named in, um, you know, those are expensive legal fees, potentially catastrophic to the NCAA's business model. So, you know, they are they are assuming some risks there. And then the third thing, which is the intellectual property, means that the conference, not only will the schools have the sole ability to decide if they want to rebuild, try to rebuild the conference by bringing other schools in, but if they decide they want to, like, merge with the Mountain West, for example, which sources have told me is a possibility, um, and we've rep- been reporting on since the summer pretty much, that they could they could join the, the, the Mountain West and bring the Pac-12's intellectual property with them. So they wouldn't necessarily need legal, um, you know, the other schools to like give them the legal documentation to do so. And to me, I mean, as an outsider here, that kind of makes sense that the two schools that are sticking around would be the ones that, you know, can can try to chart a future here, whereas like Stanford and Cal say shouldn't necessarily have a, a say in what happens to the Pac-12 if they're as they're leaving the Pac-12. Is that what it feels like to you yeah, or, or, like or it's, what's your take? The, um, Washington State and Oregon State have a very good case because First of all, that's logical. And any company's board, if a board member says, hey, in a month, in six months, in a year, I'm going to leave to go to this rival company, there is such a major conflict of interest with that person staying on the current board, right? For any reason, right? Like immediately they, they should be taken off the board. That's just like you know, par for the course in the business world. So, and that's also how the PAC 12 is operated. The PAC 12 immediately removed USC and UCLA from their board last summer, even though the schools are still in the conference for another year. And those schools were angry and they fought the PAC 12 on this. And the PAC 12 said, look at our bylaws. This is what the bylaws say. The tune has changed now because this is a situation in which these 10 departing schools have realized that since they're all off the board, the two that remain could make decisions that would keep them from getting any of their money, right? And they also, they want to dissolve the conference. It's in their, their, the departing schools, it's in their best interest to dissolve the conference so that they can, you know, split up all the money and you know, get some extra cash to help them with their exit fee or their entrance fee or their transition costs or, you know, just to line their pockets. So I I would absolutely say that it does not take, um, you know, a a legal scholar to to say that OSU and WSU absolutely have a much better case than, than the other side. Very clarifying. Amanda Christovich, thanks so much for joining us. 
Yeah, thank you. Rory McIlroy is stepping down from the PGA Tours board, citing personal and professional responsibilities. And yes, he is about to launch a brand new golf league with Tiger Woods in January. But it's also not especially hard to look at McIlroy's previous statements and think this is about more than just the time commitment. Just this week at the DP World Tour Championship in Dubai, McIlroy said, this is, quote, not what I signed up for whenever I went on the board. The game of professional golf has been in flux for the last two years. He's referring, of course, to the rise of Live Golf and the subsequent deal struck between the PGA Tour and Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, which is still not completed and may be in trouble. The day after the deal was announced in June, McElroy was even more blunt at a press conference at the RBC Canadian Open in Toronto, saying, It's hard for me to not sit up here and feel somewhat like a sacrificial lamb and feeling like I've put myself out there and this is what happens. Roy McElroy has been one of the PGA Tour's staunchest defenders, but now with its controversial deal in flux, he's ready to step aside. The Milwaukee Brewers are going to stay the Milwaukee Brewers for the foreseeable future. On Tuesday, the Wisconsin legislature agreed to spend around $500 million in public money to renovate and perform maintenance on American Family Field. As part of the deal, the Brewers have agreed to stick around through 2050. Prior to the deal, there had been consternation that the team could leave after their lease expired in 2030. The support for this deal was bipartisan, and so was the opposition. Interestingly, all but one state senator from the Milwaukee area opposed this deal, but there was enough support from other parts of the state to make it happen. One of those opposing senators, Chris Larson, said that this is a, quote, trick that is unfortunately pulled by Major League Baseball around the country. All these teams whisper repeatedly that we're going to pull your team away from you if you don't give us the cash. Some who supported the bill noted the team would have a real economic case for leaving if the state didn't strike a deal because the Brewers play in MLB's smallest media market. They will lose that distinction if the A's move from the 10th largest media market in the Bay Area to Las Vegas, which is ranked number 40. Up next, I spoke to Andrew Brandt, who has represented football teams and players throughout his career in the sport. We spoke about the Jim Harbaugh situation, the recent college football coach firings, and how the most player-friendly deal in NFL history just got even more player-friendly. That conversation is coming up right after this. Joined now by Andrew Brandt, Executive Director at the Morad Center for Sports Law at Villanova, host of the Business of Sports podcast, and author of the Sunday 7 newsletter. Welcome back, Andrew. Always good to be with you, Owen. Great to have you. Um, Just to check in, have you been fired as a college football head coach since we last spoke? No, I wish I did. I'd have the greatest uh, financial annuity package going. It's (laughs) quite a business. We can talk about that. Uh, After we talk about Jim Harbaugh, we can talk about Jimbo Fisher. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, let's start with Jim number one, uh, Harbaugh. Um, So he's been suspended from the sidelines for the rest of the season, but can do everything else that he does. Uh, First, is there, what does this mean for Michigan and Harbaugh? And is there any viable legal case that they might explore to overturn some of this? Yeah, this is in court. So this has a lot of similarities to what I've dealt with over the years with pro football, really dealing with commissioner power. The Big Ten has a new commissioner. Tony Petiti replaced Kevin Warren, who left to go to the Chicago Bears. And kind of his first big act is suspending Jim Harbaugh for the next three games, including the one that just passed. And this is something where you really look at, and what are the parties involved here? So you have one party that is also investigating called the NCAA. But as we know, everyone listening knows, those things take weeks, months, maybe even years before we'll have 
a determination of infractions on Michigan and Harbaugh. Then you have the Big Ten, which has this sportsmanship clause where Tony Petiti can basically do what he wants. It's like sportsmanship. So I would liken that to an NFL or NBA or Major League Baseball commissioner with their best interest clause or their conduct detrimental clause. Kind of the same thing. And then just like in the NFL or NBA or baseball where we have other owners, we have other schools in the Big Ten urging the commissioner to come down hard on another school, another owner, a team would be in the NFL. And here we go. We have Big Ten presidents, athletic directors, Big Ten uh, conference people saying we got to come down hard on this. And they're making an example of maybe the biggest name in the entire conference, showing that this commissioner is not afraid to act, not afraid to go after the big fish. So where do we land, Owen? We land with a TRO, temporary restraining order, Michigan and Harbaugh trying to get this ruling of a three-game suspension overturned. The, the Big Ten was strategic. They put this out last Friday afternoon. People were waiting with bated breath on Saturday morning whether Harbaugh could coach. Of course, the judge wasn't going to take it up that soon. Now they're going to take it up this Friday, and I think they could rule from the bench, as they say, on Friday to affect whether Harbaugh's on the sidelines Saturday or not. So you got a lot of different parties going on here, and the legal standard is irreparable harm, which I can talk about in a minute. And you use the term making an example. Do you feel like Harbaugh is getting targeted for something that is going on kind of throughout the college football ecosystem? I think the NCAA probably looks at this a little differently and would wonder if were there advantages, what was going, did he know up the chain, institutional control, they would get into it in a lot deeper, more depth through series of interviews, through months and months of research. This is pretty quick. This is Tony Petiti saying, I got to do something about this because this Connor Stallions has been out there and he was on the sideline at Central Michigan and he's blatantly hiring people to go scout games, which has been a rule you can't do. So I do think, number one, he's a new commissioner, wants to make a stand. Number two, he's getting pressure from other schools. I don't know who they are. I don't know if they're presidents, athletic directors, coaches. And that's part of the reason he's acting. But let me just say this, as a lawyer, they were very strategic listening to their lawyers. He is not suspended for three weeks. He's suspended for three games. So the feeling is, hey, he's there all week. He's in the meetings. He's with the offense meetings, the defense meetings. He's with the team meeting. He's at dinner at night. He goes to breakfast in the morning of the game with them. All he can't do is be on the sidelines. So they're trying to pose it so a judge, like this judge hearing it on Friday, will say, yeah, that's not really too bad. He's got the team prepared. It's not like they're not going to win without him. They didn't. They won the other day. They'll probably beat Maryland. And then, of course, the Ohio State game coming up. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's sort of my take as well. Is, this could have been worse. Um, um, yeah, anything else you want to add on the, the irreparable harm piece or any other any piece worth throwing into this stew here? Usually irreparable harm works for players because it's really that money can't solve the problem. If you give money, like players miss games because of some suspension and they get the money later, but they really needed the game to get incentives, to show the world they can get a next contract, play games. There are not many games. It's coach is a little tougher to prove irreparable harm. He can say that the team needs me, the team has to have me out there. But again, the coaches do a lot of the work without them. So it's going to be a tough standard for them. 
you know, I'm just spitballing here, Owen. Maybe there's at the courthouse steps on Friday, there's a settlement where he serves the next game, Maryland, but he's back for Ohio State. Just that could be a way to sort of resolve this. But both sides pretty dug in. And as you know, my saying, there will be lawyers. There are lawyers all over the place here. You've got Williams and Conley, the powerful D.C. firm representing Michigan. You've got Tom Mars representing Harbaugh. You've got Sidley Austin representing the Big Ten. Bill of Hours, the big winner here. Let's hop over to Jim number two, Jimbo Fisher. Uh, Texas A&M is eating $76 million, and he can do what he wants with that. Um, what does this say about the state of college football? You know, Owen, I negotiated coaching contracts for 10 years with the Packers, probably negotiated dozens of contracts, including two head coach jobs, one head coach GM. i never seen a contract like this. First of all, getting paid, he got a $95 million deal two years ago, so he gets the rest of that. The payout is extraordinary. He gets $19 million now, and then payments of $7 million for the next eight years? Quite an annuity that puts Barry, I see your hat there, Bobby Bonilla to shame. Uh, the other part of it is really even more stunning to me, and let me explain this to our listeners, no offset. So usually in these contracts, when you're fired... When you, you have a duty to mitigate, meaning go out, look for jobs, maybe not right away, but within a year or so and get a job. And that money comes off the obligation from the team that fired them. There's no offset in this contract. So they're on the hook for $76 million, Texas A&M, no matter if he gets one job, two jobs, 20 jobs, no jobs, whether he makes a dollar or $100 million, they're on the hook for it. Jimbo Fisher can double dip, triple dip, quadruple dip and get all. I've never seen that. I've done head coaching contracts in the NFL. I've never seen that. So the business of college football is booming where they can give a contract to a coach better. And I say this with authority, better than virtually all NFL coaching contracts. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, Staying in that realm, Mississippi State let go of Zach Arnett less than a year into his deal. Are we seeing new levels of impatience? And is that going to hold, do you think, for a little while? I think it's more like the NFL. Everything we look at is like NFL football without the labor costs, of course, where the impatience is there. You know, we've seen owners like Cleveland Browns, Jimmy Haslam, other owners, one and dones throughout football. We saw that with the Arizona Cardinals, Steve Wilkes. I mean, this is happening in college now, just not having a lot of patience. I mean, that Mississippi State coach was not like 1-11. in 11. He was like 4-5 and five or something, whatever he was. And just a lack of patience, which is very much like NFL football. Yeah, and you know, the same with Jimbo Fisher. It's not like it was a total disaster. It was just, you know, not not elite. Um, and yeah, the idea that you could shape a program over time that uh, just feels like it's not a thing anymore. Um, all right. You can't be better shape it fast, I guess. Um, one more contract that is working well out well for the, um, the person receiving the money, less so for the entity paying the money. Uh, Deshaun Watson now out for the year. Uh, just talk to me a bit about that contract and um, yeah, how that one's working out. I've talked a lot about that contract. You would think that of all the people playing football in the history of the game, this would not be the guy, but he is, who's gotten the biggest contract in the history of football and the most secure. It's a five-year fully secured, fully guaranteed $230 million deal, just like an NBA or Major League Baseball deal that we don't see in football, where you have full guarantees. 
He's now two years into it, less than two years. He's made $91 million. He has all that left to get to $230 million. And, of course, he had the 11-game suspension last year. Now his season ends as of today with the announcement of a shoulder injury. So really playing 11 games total, he'll make 90-something million dollars with the next three years fully guaranteed. That contract's so good, Owen, that owners fought hard this past offseason. Well, players got a lot of money like Justin Herbert, Joe Burrow, Lamar Jackson, just uh, Jalen Hurts, but none of them got that structure. They've got two, three years guaranteed and the rest kind of all on the team. But wow, this is the best contract in history. And now he's out again. It's just tough for the Browns. It's a lot of people asking why the Browns even did this with his background. But here we are. Yeah, here we are indeed. Do you think he's going to hold that title of best contract in football for a while, especially given how well it's going for the team? I think he will on the guarantee side. I know a lot of media focuses on the big number and $200, $300 million, but I focus on what's really real, you know, and, and again, NBA, Major League Baseball, they're real, you know, that's real money. Like you get a $300 million contract in baseball, you're going to get that. And that's what's happening with Watson. As I said, owners fought against it right away and I don't see it happening. I don't see five years fully secured anymore. I do see big numbers, but they're not going to be non-guaranteed numbers. Yeah, and you know, we're seeing why NFL teams like to not guarantee everything. Andrew Brandt, excellent insights as always. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Always enjoy it, Owen. That is it for today. Subscribe to Front Office Sports Today on the podcast app of your choice. Thanks so much for listening. We will see you tomorrow.